welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 73. So, uh, just like uh, McHale's Navy PT-73, this is number 73. Uh, I learned a lesson from last time when I didn't write the episode number on the on my notes. And I was like, well, wait a minute, it's 71. No, no, it's 72. But this time it is, in point of fact, actually 73. Okay, got a lot of things to get to. Um of course, you know, the biggest the biggest issue, the big elephant in everyone's room is this lawlessness, which is just pervasively across the land. I mean, uh, everything from the CHAP or CHAWS, whatever they call that thing in Seattle, which they at least announced today they're going to try to, you know, take this apart. It's gone far enough. It needs to take it apart. They've had at least one person, maybe even a couple of people killed inside. So they're finding out that this ain't the summer of love. This is more uh, Lord, of, more Lord of the Flies than summer of love. You know, it just it shows the hypocrisy of the liberals and and the Democrats when you notice that there were people wandering around Chaz, this Chaz thing, and they were armed to the teeth. Now whether the the firearms were actually real. Yeah, it could have been airsoft, for all I know. I mean, for all I know, it could be airsoft guns. Or it could be the, you know, twenty-two long rifle um, kind of sub-caliber copies of, of ARs and AKs or, or whatever else. So, you know, I, I don't really know to what extent they're armed. But if you take it on the pictorial, the face value of the pictures, um, you know, they are armed with modern military-style rifles. At least some of them are. But you don't hear a peep about gun control on when it, it comes down to the Chaz people or these, you know, they call them protesters. They, well, they call them whatever they want. They're anarchists. But if these were right-wing people, they'd be screaming about gun control and militias and, and all the rest of it, but not a peep about any of that. When it comes to the uh, the people in the chaz living the summer of summer of love, you know it's what it is. It's probably more. It's probably like I said, more Lord of the Flies or more of the Manson clan than it is uh, um, anything else. But this lawlessness is sweeping across the land. It's it's even to the point where, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about. I have like I said, I have a modest house. I have a little place where I can put up a reasonable, not a huge, but a reasonable size flag. And I can put up some bunting on my front porch. You know, that red, white, and blue bunting, you know, um, that you kind of see, you know, kind of half moon looking stuff, you know, half circular, fits on a little the little rail on the uh, front porch. And, and I'm actually wondering if I want to put that up. I mean, uh Every instinct tells me to put it up and sit out there with a 12-gauge, and if somebody comes and tries to cut it down or burn it off my house, to blast them. But I really don't want to, I, I really, you know, they aren't worth that kind of effort. So I'm thinking about just not putting it up and just saying, hey, you know, I just don't want to be a target. Maybe this is a time to kind of lie low. And uh, But I don't know. I don't know. Even even a modest house like mine is, is going to be seen as privilege. Um you know, anything I have is going to be seen as privilege, even though I've served in two armed conflicts. Everything I have is from essentially, you know, the salary or the payment I got for being in the armed forces and participating in two co- armed conflicts and other other kinds of operations. So I don't really see that as privilege or nobody nobody handed it to me. Um, in life, I've actually inherited, outside of some material things, uh, I've inherited very little. Uh, I did not inherit cash. I did not inherit any kind of property or instruments or anything. Everything I have has come from the sweat of my own brow, but they're willing to overlook that and call it privilege just simply to rationalize their thievery of it because they would love to take my place and, and all my stuff and give it to people who who frankly don't deserve it and uh, i know small business owners who are in the same deal you know to me you know people always come up and go oh thank you for your service and some people will say i don't know how you could do it it's so dang i don't know how i'll tell you this right now it was easier for me to do that than it would be for me to be a small businessman where 
my everything is at stake all the time. You have to keep turning a profit. You have to keep going. That being a small businessman takes a lot of moxie and a lot of courage. And um, I know I know men and women who are in small business, and and man, I my hats off to them. They they live in a a you know a world where there's a lot of risk. There's reward, but there's a lot of risk, and there's a lot of hard work. And the future isn't always known to them, you know. So, um, you know, my hat's off to them. And that's why it's so heartbreaking. Whenever you see something, you know, burned down, whether it's the Wendy's in Atlanta, you know, there were a lot of people who work there who don't have jobs now because this thing is some burned out Hulk. You know, it looks like, um, looks like some piece of wreckage out of that you would have seen in the Balkans in Bosnia or you know something from uh, the Blitz in London you know you it, it's just where people were working making a living and and had and had a job and had a livelihood now there's nothing but some charred walls and all that and uh, um, you know that's wrong that's that's as big a crime as you know, this police brutality or whatever they, they want to protest. They want to focus on that, but they don't want to focus on their own brutality, mob brutality, you know, lawlessness and mob brutality. Um, they don't want to focus on that. And, and again, as I said in the last podcast and probably the one before and the one before, you know, we cannot have the police go away and our Second Amendment rights taken away that will leave you at the mercy of what you're seeing on your television scene. You know, um, if you are seeing, you know, mobs of people who are just kind of doing what they want, defacing what they want, burning what they want, just doing what they want. Well, they'll burn a national, you know, monument, which is the, the church across the street from the White House. When they'll burn that, what do you think they'll do to us? What do you think they'll do to you and me? in our neighborhood that they're going to, you know, lie to themselves and say it's all built on some sort of privilege and everything else. And if we don't have weapons, I mean, I, I sit there and I look at these large crowds and I say, you know, this is this is why I need, you know, five or six 30-round magazines for an AR. I, I cannot defend this as much as, as good a rifle as my old 1917, model 1917 is, you know, it's it's not. I can't hold out against the crowd with that. I can't adequately defend myself with that, or my home, or anything else. I mean, yeah, I can I can pop a couple guys with it who are who are bent on doing me harm, but uh, I can't get them all. And that's just the way that goes. I have a much better chance with a modern rifle, and especially if the police aren't around. You know, the best thing is to have police protection and kind of police supervision, kind of keeping everything there. But if you don't have that and it comes down to you, you need the best tools available. And uh, right now they're doing their best to shred that thin blue line that's between us, lawlessness, and anarchy. They're doing their best to break it and hurt it whenever they can. And, uh, you know, you see it in the crime statistics in the large cities. I think small towns, nothing really has radically changed. But in the big cities, the police are just kind of retreating, you know. And there's a lot more lawlessness over the weekend in Chicago last weekend than there was, you know, four or five months ago or last year. So the lawlessness is here. It's coming. And, you know, I would just, uh, I don't look for trouble and I don't want trouble. The last thing I want is any kind of trouble. But if it comes and, you know, I have to defend my family, then that's, that's what I will do. And, uh, you know, I will use every bit of training and everything I have at my disposal and uh, make them hurt as much as possible because, you know, I don't play by the rules when I'm defending. I just don't. Um, just like they don't play by any any rules. You know, they'll burn you out and kill you. What kind of rules are there? So, you know, that's the somber note of where we are, and I hope that... Uh, we don't, that this isn't the tip of the iceberg, but it might very well be. It could be, you know, in that, that old tired phrase, a long, hot summer, if, if all this nonsense continues. Okay, uh, a couple of gun culture things coming up. You know, we kind of do three parts. We do 
political stuff related to the Second Amendment. We kind of do, uh, um, you know, gun culture stuff. And then we kind of do questions and answers, which is my favorite part. But uh, one other, as far as the gun culture stuff goes, you know, I kind of told people, you know, this pistol brace thing was, it's probably too good to be true and last. Uh, It appears that at least there's some there's some discussion or movement to try to make those things essentially illegal, you know, uh, basically seeing them as a workaround for SBRs in places that either don't allow SBRs or if um, people don't want to wait and register something as an SBR, that having that little shorter stock is is uh, acceptable to them to get around that that sort of thing. So. You know, I don't know. It, it, I hope it doesn't wind up like bump stocks, but it could. It could. So I would say be careful if you invest in that because you might not be able to use it in a few months. Okay, some other gun culture stuff here is uh, some videos released. I think it was Military Arms Channel, kind of the M14 versus the FAL versus the G3 versus the AR-10. Um, you know, and, and that is all what it is. And, and certainly if you put something like that on, um, they're entitled to their opinions, certainly. But they're not entitled to the facts. And, you know, the facts are sometimes out there. One of the facts that they got right, that they got completely right, was the fact that the adjustable gas system on the FAL is not so that when the rifle gets dirtier and dirtier, you can just keep opening it up and the rifle will keep functioning. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's there for. What it's there for is to tune your rifle, tune your FAL, to whatever type of ammunition you have available. And when I say tune your, I really mean countries that bought them would also buy ammunition or perhaps even load their own. And there was no guarantee that it was all going to be uh, NATO standard type ammunition. That certainly would be the ideal state. But if you're off in some of these other countries in Africa and Asia or out any other places, you could wind up with 7.62 by 51 ammunition that was not NATO standard or had been assembled with components and it runs a lot dirtier. Maybe it's underpowered ammunition. That's probably the uh, most likely case. So there, in order to compensate for the variables in ammunition, that's what the adjustable gas system was for. Because they knew the Belgians weren't, they didn't develop design and develop the FAL and chamber it in, in 7.62 by 51 NATO just to equip the Belgian army and maybe sell a few to their neighbors like Luxembourg or whatever else. They knew that that was going to be a worldwide seller. FN sells weapons. So... I'm glad to see that at least in these videos they got that right. But if you ever hear it's so when your rifle gets dirtier and dirtier, you keep opening it, that, that's not what that is designed for. Um, it's very, you know, it's it's to me it's very unusual to think that you would be in such a situation that you could not at least have some sort of a, a respite and um, clean your weapon as opposed to doing that because just by opening it up a little bit more you if, if it's not if it's malfunctioning you open it up one click you have no real guarantee that it's going to keep that that's going to correct the malfunctions so um you know just on the face of it it just doesn't really work so that's a, one of the things about the fao uh, the the ar-10 and m14 they they got completely wrong just completely wrong um, I, I'll tell you the, I'll start with the AR-10 and the AR-10, when it, it went up into the army trials and the army trials were really designed to, to do a couple different things. And I'll talk about that with the, with the M14, but you know, the, it, it was a very interesting rifle, but the fact of the matter is it was lightweight, had a lot of recoil and they tried. They had tried to use a composite barrel material with a liner that um, of one material, and and um, they had like this fiberglass coating. And what happened was, these these different 
elements in the barrel because it was a composite barrel made out of a couple different things, uh, heated differently, and it, and it warped. And a bullet actually went out the side of the thing when they were firing it. And that's basically what, what they... I think at that point the Army handed it back to him and said, hey, this is really cool, but, you know, thanks, but no thanks. So, you know, the AR-10, um, it, it got it got some orders and some service. Uh, it was a good rifle. When they when they on the video when they mis, when they say well this really could have been developed into something really great it's like well it was I mean there's AR-10 rifles out based rifles out all over the place and you know the military uses them for sniping the people have put them in 6.5 Creedmoor anything that takes a cartridge longer than 5.56 is done on an action with an, the AR-10 style receiver for an AR system rifle. So it, it has been developed, and it's, it's gotten all the developmental uh, uh, benefits of being an AR system rifle that uh, came about with 5.56. And it's very, very interesting that, uh, you know, they kind of didn't recognize that. It's like, no, it has been developed, and it's a, and it's a great rifle, and, and it's kind of filling in a niche of, of being a precision rifle as opposed to a main battle rifle. So... Now, for the next part, the M14 part, I've said this before, but it's been a while. So, if you heard my my diatribe on why the M14 was was adopted over other designs, feel free to fast forward by this or listen to it if you again if you need a, a bedtime story. But uh, it's essentially a lot more complex than than any of these gun content creators tell you. Um, a lot of these guys just kind of look at the rifle and say, well, you know, the, it just doesn't have the features of an FAL or an AR-10 or a G3. and It should have been, it really shouldn't have been adopted. They had to rig the tests for it. They, they go into all these, all these minutiae reasons, okay? And, and in order to understand why the M14 was adopted, you, you have to take a step back and you have to actually look at the world in the 1950s and you have to look at the experience that the United States had just come out of. Um, the United States was very happy with the Garand system in the Second World War. You know, Patton called it the greatest battle implement ever devised. I mean, it, it was robust, reliable, powerful, quick loading. Uh, it, it had great attributes, absolutely great attributes. After World War II, you know, all of a sudden, the alliance we had with the Soviet Union just completely turns to shit. It completely goes bad. So that by 1948, we have the Berlin airlift going on, where basically they cut off Berlin, and we had to fly things in there, and, and tensions really skyrocket. Well, Right at the end of the war, of course, Springfield Armory, the, the, the military is demobilizing. Springfield Armory is really getting trainloads of M1 Garands shipped to them. And they're repairing and refurbishing them. Because there were a few tiny changes made during the war. You know, stamped barrel bands and, and a few things. Very small stamp trigger guards, you know, all this kind of stuff was there. And, and so they were upgrading, upgrading and refurbishing these rifles. Some of them had been broken in combat, damaged in combat, and, and whatever else. Or shot, you know, with um, an ungodly amount of, of uh, ammunition and the barrels were worn out. So they, they were basically refurbishing these rifles. 1950 comes rolling around, and we've got the Korean War. Well, we don't have... A replacement for the M1, so the M1 goes to war again and performs brilliantly again. Um, the army was very, very satisfied with with the M1, but everybody knew going back to about 1944 that we really needed to improve the loading system and magazine-fed rifles were the way to go. But every attempt they made to develop a magazine-fed M1 Garand turned out to be this large, awkward gun that was so heavy that by the time they got it cobbled together and figured out how to make it work, 
the thing is approaching the weight of a BAR. And, you know, that was a function of the fact that the rifle had to be big and heavy. The magazine had to be big and heavy to uh, accommodate the .30-06 cartridge. Well, in the early 50s, you know, while the Korean War is raging and, and just after its conclusion, uh, they realized that, you know, in the, since the beginning of World War II, a lot of, a lot of advancements had been made in propellants, and it was possible to get 30-06 performance out of a shorter cartridge because of the efficiencies of, of some of these new propellants. Now, a shorter cartridge means lighter and more reliable firearms, generally. That's, that's generally one of the benefits of having a, a smaller, shorter cartridge. So they started to you know, go about and develop that cartridge and actually adopted the cartridge before, and we rammed it down NATO's throat. There's no, no question about that. U.S. military, again, was very happy with the performance of the Garand, Ballistically, the 30-06 was good to go. Hey, this is this is a good deal, and we told them this is a good deal. You get 30-06 performance out of a smaller cartridge that we can design, you know, more efficient weapons for, and actually get a magazine-fed weapon that's not going to weigh as much as a BAR and be this big ponderous thing. So. Um, Countries basically the F the FAL which which they had had in the old eight millimeter Kurtz cartridge, they retool that for seven six two by fifty one. A uh, few other things, you know, the British were experimenting with bullpups. Those those all went by the wayside because they couldn't really adapt those to seven six two by fifty one. Uh, even the Italians, who you know very cleverly took M one Garands and and. Uh, uh, converted them into a magazine-fed system and had the BM-59, which uh, was a pretty pretty efficient system. It didn't save you the weight in the receiver or the bolt or some of the other parts, but it, it was a, a very, very good conversion. So, you know, you, you've, got, you've got all that, all right? The military is happy with the Garand. They're happy with the performance. So therefore, it's it's not unusual to think that they would get a cartridge that had the same performance, approximately, as the 30-06. And since they're happy with the Garand, they're going to go with a product-improved Garand, which is magazine-fed and, and everything else. Now, it took them a long time to kind of get there. Um, a lot of people say that's that's the difference between a government-run arsenal, which is not does not have the... Uh, sense of urgency or competitive spirit uh, that a private company that's developing something would do, the profit motive. It's not really there in the government thing. So, you know, it took them a long time, and they developed it, and they, they came up with a rifle that was a product-improved M1 Garand. It used the same sights, effectively the same trigger, and it, it had, but it did have a slightly shorter barrel, a more efficient flash hider, because the M1 didn't actually have any ex except for the ones that were used on the uh, sniper rifles. It had an improved gas system, and you know it was it was generally a very very good rifle. And that the reason they were wanting a Garand style rifle, and indeed the reason that the U.S. military would not adopt anything except a Garand style rifle is that, uh, you know, we'd started the draft in 1940, and we were still drafting people up into the, the 1970s, the early 70s anyway. And so we had this pool of, you have the soldiers who are on active duty, you have soldiers who are in the National Guard and Army Reserve and, and the Marine and Air Force and Navy equivalents of these. And then you have this pool of people who've done their service but they're still in that vast manpower pool that if you had to, if you're fighting World War III, you can call these guys back to active duty. And these guys are still military-age males. You know, from anywhere from the age of, you know, 25. You have the World War II veterans, Korean War veterans. So you got these guys who are about the, from the age of about 25 to maybe at the top end 40. And if we've got to fight World War III in the 1950s, 
you know, we're going to be using these guys. We're going to be mobilizing millions of men. And a lot of those guys are going to be equipped with the Garand rifles we already have in storage. But if our new rifle is like the Garand, the training becomes very, very easy for these guys. You hand somebody who's trained on an M1 rifle an FNFAL, well, they're going to struggle with it a little bit. You hand them an M14, and within an hour or two, they're up to speed. So uh, that's that's really and and the Garand system in a different form was also using the M1 carbine, which would have been you know we had millions of those. So if we have to fight World War III in the 1950s, we've got the manpower, and we're going to have weapons that are all effectively the same. Remember, the 1950s were a lot different than the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even now. World War III was not seen as being particularly just a, a nuclear showdown where we all just dropped bombs on each other and, and everybody, everybody got burned up. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union, and indeed even the United States, did not have that many nuclear weapons. So you, you could still, you could expend all your nuclear weapons and still be at war, and you're using conventional stuff until you can, you know, build more nuclear weapons. It was seen as part of the arsenal, and not just the arsenal. Now that came about and changed in the 1960s with the emergence of missiles and, and you know, long-range jet bombers and everything else. But we... You know, you still have to look at the fact that the 1950s, uh, World War III was going to be fought in many ways like World War II, where you're mobilizing millions of people. You're mobilizing millions of people. So I think that is one of the great reasons why a Garand-style rifle was going to be adopted. Now, as it turned out, and in the long run, uh, that was not... A great decision simply because things changed very quickly by say 1965 all of a sudden we have a problem the problem is we have mutually assured destruction coming in where hey guess what we're not going to have time to mobilize millions of men simply because we're if we fight in, if we fight a World War three it's going to be a nuclear war and everybody's got enough nukes now so it, the, it's the change, the conditions have radically changed. So now we have these, another problem. We have another problem, and that is we are now in a land war, a limited war, on the continent of Asia, in which the M14 was not really designed for jungle fighting specifically. It was designed, just like the M1 Garand and the Springfield before it, to be this general purpose rifle you could kind of use anywhere but it was really given its power and its other positive attributes of accuracy and and great sights it's really meant for the open areas of europe or north africa and not really the dark jungles triple canopy jungle in the uh in southeast asia so you know, obviously they pivoted towards the the AR-15, M-16, and and there you go. That's the the history. Was the M-14 a failure? No. It was was it the right rifle at the right time? I I think if they had adopted it in 1950, it it would have been a little better suited for that era. But everybody everybody looks at it, and I tend to agree that it's a rifle designed for the 1945 battlefield not the 1965 battlefield that it found itself on and and had to be uh, you know taken out of frontline service a couple of other issues that always pop up that either get denied or, or get put in back the m14 was in fact lighter than the fnfal it just was you may not see that if you're comparing civilian equivalents today given the different kinds of stocks and other things that that can go there but it, in point of fact, was lighter, it had less parts, and it did not have an adjustable gas system, which uh, nobody felt they needed because we would always be firing ball M80 style um, and specification ammunition. So it was never really uh, looked at that it would have to uh, 
be adjusted to the gas system would have to be adjusted to accommodate different types of manufactured ammunition. It was designed to use ball M80, and that's that's what it does. It does it very very well, in fact. You know, it's a very very good system, and it it does everything it was intended to do. It just wasn't it just wasn't going to fit the changing conditions of warfare, especially especially limited wars where you know you can wind up in all kinds of different places and you really need a weapon optimized for whatever environment you're in. The FAL also had a small problem of it's a Belgian design. The Belgians own it. And the Belgians were willing to allow us to manufacture it and use it as part of their gratitude for their liberation in the Second World War. But if we ever, if the United, we, meaning the United States, ever wanted to manufacture the rifle and provide it to our allies, there, there could have been a problem there. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they would have said, well, we don't mind you using it, but hey, you're giving it to people in Japan and Taiwan, and we're not really, you know, we need some, we need some compensation for that. Because it always comes down to money. Uh, there's, always that, there's always that thing of who owns this, and nobody wants to get in the international court doing all this again, and, you know, on and on and on. So, there were other there were other issues. I think the Armalite had there been the emphasis on special operations in the late nineteen fifties that there certainly is now. Uh, I think you could have seen the the Armalite AR ten um, adopted at least in small numbers for uh, special forces or what we now call special operations forces. Could have happened because it it was light powerful. It had a lot of great attributes. Possibly even the same thing with the FN. So that's that's kind of the way it goes. It, it was never really going to be anything but a Garand system weapon for all those reasons I articulated. National reasons that, you know, what fit what fits the South African Army's needs did not necessarily fit the United States Army's needs. And so, you know, that's just, we had two different, two different requirements. Um, you know, the other countries, and I think over 90 countries wound up using the FAL. Um, I don't think it's nearly that many now. I think, I don't think anybody uses it in frontline service. But it was a good design, and it, and it certainly has done well. And I, I love the FAL. I mean, I love shooting it. It's a great, great weapon. Um. But I'm also I also really like the M14. I probably like the M14 a little better, and that may be because I'm more familiar with it. Because for for years I used it in service rifle competitions. So uh, when they talk about well, it's hard to rock the magazine in, I sit there and I go, well, it's not. I mean, if you train it, if you train on it enough, it's just as easy to put a magazine in an M14 as it is an FAL or an AK or anything else. It, it just is. And so, you know, a lot of the things that they want to nitpick about really weren't, and say are problems, really weren't problems. The M14's excellence is demonstrated by the fact that it makes an excellent DMR. It's powerful, it's accurate, and a lot of times its accuracy gets kind of kind of degraded um you know people say well it's a four three or four moa rifle well i've not ever seen that i've only seen ones that shoot very very well whether they're match configurations or even the regular troopy configurations shoot really well and when military arms channel kind of does you know they shoot from a bed a sandbag bench at 150 yards i mean shoot any rifle can do that I could take my trapdoor Springfield and do that. You know, it's just not that not that special. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring light on, you know, things that they say are controversies and things that they say are true. Um, when you look at it in the light of history and the decision that needed to be made with the information that was available at the time, it was inevitable the M14 would be adopted. All right, we're now going to start the uh, next part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And boy, 
I felt like I've been rambling forever on the uh, <laughs> M14FAL. But, you know, it's important to kind of know the facts sometimes. But we have something that's uh, very interesting from our friend Clown Bear, who sent in a question. Um, name the five most significant firearms and why. So this may be another one, but at least it'll be broken into five parts. So uh, I did take a little bit of time to think about this. And I did try to avoid the cop-out answers. You know, you could always say, well, you know, the hand cannon because it was the first firearm. Or you could say, well, it was the wheel lock and then the flint lock. And, you know, those, those are kind of the pat answers, which are, are good answers in some ways. But I'm kind of confining this to the more modern era. You know, an era where we actually uh, had a lot of different types of firearms and a lot of different designs so ones that were essentially the most significant um, were, were basically competing with a lot of other designs and a lot of other ideas so this is this is where it is and I you could probably list these in any order I just kind of rank ordered them but you know that that doesn't really mean much so the difference between number five and number one you know that's that's a matter of personal taste but anyway, so the fifth most significant firearm I said was the Winchester 66. And here's why I said that. Although the Henry was the first probably successful lever action rifle, um, you know, the Henry's got some real awkward, <laughs> awkward things about it. Uh, they never really made it in a carbine. They never... Um, you know, it, it, it had that funny loading way where you got to go up to the top and, you know, flip that flip that little thing around. It's got that tab that kind of comes down, you know, because it's got the spring behind it. So, you know, when you're holding it, it doesn't have a wooden forearm because that tab has got to move down the, the magazine tube. So, you know, I, I just kind of, and it really wasn't made in very big numbers or for very long. But the Winchester 66 was a development of the Henry, and it incorporated a couple of really cool things. Number one, it had the King's patent loading gate that we're all used to. You know, the one on the side of the receiver that you just push the cartridges into. And, uh, you know, that's really a fixture. To my mind, I, when I look at a lever action, if it has that, I think it's a good lever action. If it doesn't, I don't think it's a good lever action. So that's become a, a real trait of the lever action. The other thing it did was it had the wooden forearm, which, you know, every every good lever action has. Uh, you know, basically every, you don't see them without that. that. That became, you know, a design requirement was to have that wooden forearm so you could you could actually hold the thing and, and not get burned or, or not interfere with the uh, magazine tube functioning. The... Uh, the other thing it had was they made it in a carbine length. So you could get saddle ring carbine type type guns, and they were very, very handy. And, you know, and, and they were, you know, chambered for a variety of cartridges. A lot. They were still working out the metallic cartridge thing. So you had, the, you know, these weird big rim fires and stuff like that. But, you know, once they, once they kind of got that sorted out, they made the 66 up until about 1900. And uh, I think it was a, a great rifle. And in fact, uh, we, we talked about lawlessness at the beginning of the beginning of the podcast. You know, if you have a and, and the originals are kind of out of the out of the game on this, but you know, if you have one of the reproduction newly made Winchester sixty sixes, uh, you are relatively well armed. You know, you you have capacity. You have a lever action. Uh, you can reload it fairly quickly with the the uh, the loading gate. Uh, it is not a bad it is not a bad rifle. And and here we are. We're talking about something. Well, eighteen sixty six was what one hundred and fifty hundred fifty four years ago. So you know, a hundred and fifty four year old design is still could still be pretty relevant today. So I put the. One more reason, one more reason for the 1866 is it really established the pattern for every lever action that has that has followed it. As far as size, as far as the loading gate, 
all, all the stuff I talked about, it set that pattern, and you see that pattern carried on even into other manufacturers like Marlin and, and a few others. Um, you know, it really it was the pattern, and it proliferated the ideas, and the, the features it had really became requirements for subject, subsequent lever actions. So the 66 is on there. Okay, the next one. The next one is the Colt Walker revolver, which the Colt Walker is, you know, the very large um, six-shot percussion revolver that was used uh, during the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s. Uh, it, it really established what a revolver was and what a revolver could be. Uh, before the before the Walker was out there, there there were other weird kind of uh, revolver designs by other people other than Colt. Colt came out with the Colt Patterson, which was a five shot folding trigger kind of kind of really fragile and clunky looking thing. But it worked well enough that the Texas Rangers came to him, and Colt was out of business by this time. He got back into business. And with their input, produced this large, what we now call a horse revolver. And it was large caliber, large uh, uh, powder capacity in each chamber, single action, the grip, everything. Kind of established what we have known the revolver to be. It introduced what is effectively 45 caliber. They call it a 44, but it's actually a 45 caliber. Uh, six chambers in the re in the uh, revolver cylinder, so you know that's pretty standard. I know these days, you know, you can get there are some a few models here and there, kind of on the uh, outlier side that, that hold more. There's a couple of you know the old Chief Special and things that hold five, but six has really become the standard of the the chambers that a revolver has. So it established that it. As I said earlier, it, it established 45 caliber as a you know large as a large caliber. So you know if it, if they introduced the 51 Navy instead of the Walker, we would probably be talking about 38 caliber revolvers as being large bore revolvers, or would have for a long time. So the Walker was really a lot more influential than people kind of give it credit for. Now it wasn't perfect, and they refined the design and. And kind of uh, reeled it in a little bit. Came out with the Colt Dragoon, which was, you know, a little bit smaller. And then we got down into the 1860, 51, 1860 um, revolver percussion revolvers. Those all evolved into the single actions that we know today. But a lot of the attributes, again, the number of chambers and the overall size envelope and all these things, uh, really, really established what a revolver was going to look like. And the power of the of the Walker came back when, you know, it's not so unusual when you see very powerful revolvers. A lot of people harken back and say, well, you know, the Colt Walker kind of set the precedent for that, that a revolver could be powerful. And it was not uh, abnormal to have one that, that was, in fact, very powerful. So the Colt Walker... It is in the number yeah, number four position. Number four position. Okay, these next these next three will be controversial, very controversial, I think. But you know that's what it's about. The next one is the and you hang on for this the Mauser C ninety six broom handle. Okay, the Mauser C ninety six. Everybody gets it. The broom handle Mauser, still a very cool looking gun today. I mean, still, you look at it, and it just looks cool. But when it was designed, um, nobody really knew what an auto pistol really had to look like. There weren't any patterns. The bore chart, which was the uh, kind of the first, the, the it was the design that inspired the Luger. It was out there, you know, kind of with the toggle action, and, you know, and it had a detachable stock, and people couldn't really figure out. Everybody kind of shot it with a stock on. Nobody really shot it without that. So it really, you know, was was it a carbine? Was it an auto pistol? What kind of was it? So the bore chart really didn't help very much. But the Mauser C96 could be fired. And you know what? It, it was a brilliant design. 
because it was very reliable right from the get-go. And in fact, it came out in about 1895, 1896. Uh, Churchill had one in 1898, and, you know, he shot a couple of people at, you know, this big battle he was in. So, I mean, it was, it was well-known, and, and it proliferated very quickly. It was never actually officially adopted as, a na as any nation's primary handgun. But a lot of nations bought it, and a lot of private individuals bought them. And so, you know, between 1896 and 1945, it was, wherever the action was, it was. And even some of the shorter-barreled Bolo models um, were even in the uh, Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Apparently, some of the people had the, some of the Russians had them, and they, they took them into Afghanistan. To what extent or how official that was or... Or how that ever happened, I don't, I don't really know, but there are reports of them being there. So you have the C-96. The, now you can say, well, the C-96 is pretty much, a, pretty much, I guess, a dead-end uh, design because, you know, there weren't a whole lot of other ones. Astra made one, the Astra Model 900, which looked as almost like a ringer for the uh, C-96. But there were a lot of other, like, Bergman pistols and a few other things that that were out there that, that did have kind of what we would consider to be unconventional layouts. And the uh, the Mauser kind of, you know, made that happen. It basically said, design it the way you need it to work. So Mauser did, and so did so did a lot of other people. There, were, there was no real pattern to go by, and so, you know, free thinking was, was out there. So that's why I like the uh, Mauser C96 broom handle. The next pistol, most significant, and again, you know, it's funny that another handgun has to be the Colt Model 1911. Essentially, most of the pistols that have been produced since 1911 are in some way design influenced by the 1911. Not all of them, but many of them. And I would say that uh, even even modern ones like Glock and a few other things uh, owe more to the 1911 than they do any other design. And I, I'm not going to go into everything, but obviously the design is still alive and well and, and doing very well today in civilian sales. There's still some military use of the 1911. And uh, so, many, so many other designs have copied elements of it way too many to, to do. So you have to say that although the 1911 may not have originated every attribute that others have copied, it did put them all into one package and one package which was the service automatic and it just established it. it it's the one that rose to the top and uh, while not everything on it is original, uh, the sum of all these things is original and it does it does an excellent job so the 1911 is there and so the number one number one has to be has to be the AR-15 it, it just it can't be any other any other rifle um, or any other handgun because it's simply the AR has is the the gun, it is the gun to beat. It is now the gold standard of rifles everywhere. And you could you could make a, a strong thing saying, well, not as many of them have been made as AK-47 and 74s and other variants of the AK series. And I would say you're true, but the AK is kind of a dated design. And very few new rifles are going to be made on the AK design. They're just not. Even, even countries like Israel, kind of, they came out, remember the Galil, and that was supposed to be the world beater, but it was heavy, and they ditched it. And every other country that basically got their hands on it ditched it. Um, the Finns still use the Valmet, and I assume they use, and they also use AKs. Um, you know, and, and, and it's a very cost-effective solution especially if you don't really expect to be in war. You know, that's a very cost-effective solution. Uh, they, they exist, so they proliferate. But you're not going to see cutting-edge technology go onto the AK platform. You're just not. It's, it's just not there. It's a great design, but 
frankly, the future is not in the AK. The future is in the AR. And the AR can adapt itself much more readily. The AK struggles. To modernize an AK, you really struggle. And you have to get some, I won't say they're questionable parts, but, you know, there's some parts that have been compromised and been adapted so you can put a rail on top of an AK, the, the whole bunch of problems. You know, you can't put anything on that, on the action cover, the dust cover of the thing, because it just it's just not solid enough. So you can't mount any optics on it, can't mount a sight on it. So therefore, you've got to go forward to that and try to figure out how to put a, put a rail on it. Um, you know, it's it's trying to keep up, but it has always been behind the AR. It's always been behind. Um, you know, there's going to be some some interesting things happening. Um, maybe doing some shoot-offs between, I think, like a Brownells Proto AR shooting against an AKM-style AK. Would it prove anything? No. But it would be interesting to watch. I'd watch that. So anyway, uh, but the future is with the AR, not the not the AK, and so that's why the AR is on top. Every country, every legit country, is basically adopting some sort of AK, unless unless they're like the British and they're they're stuck with their bullpup. You know, the British would have been so much smarter when that thing turned out to be a piece of junk back in the. Uh, I guess it was the 80s or 90s, late 80s, when they adopted it. They should have ditched it for M16 of some kind. You know, A2, A1 or A2. Should have ditched it. But they didn't, so now they're stuck with it. Uh, same thing, the, you know, the French have gone to the H&K 416, which is really just the piston-driven AR. A um, lot of the world, where, where you really see it is, a lot of the world's special operations units use ARs and not AKs. They just do. And there's a reason for that. It's modularity, it's reliability, it's lightweight, it's it's all the good things that the AR system has. The ergonomics are, are you know, they, they're world standard. They're second to none. Um, they just absolutely are awesome. And that's why it's there. And that's why everybody who can use it does use it. Okay, now, as a second part of that question, which Clown Bear did not ask, I just threw it in, is what are, where are a couple of honorable mentions? Because you can never, you can never have a list like that that's going to be inclusive, and I didn't put any shotguns on there. I also didn't put any evolutionary um, rifles on there. I mean, is the, face it, is the, Mauser 93 really deserved to be on the list, even though it's a very, very good rifle. A, an excellent rifle, as a matter of fact. But does it deserve to be there? Well, it's just kind of an evolutionary deal. I went with the ones that were kind of revolutionary, the ones that were different than what came before them and what have proliferated. Um, their, at least their ideas have proliferated now. But here's, a, here's another one. Uh, honorable mention. Honorable mention. The Gewehr 88 Commission Rifle. Um, if there's one rifle that's underrated and gets dogged out uh, in military rifle circles, it's the GEW, they call it Gewehr 88. And that was the first bolt-action, you know, small-bore, smokeless powder rifle the Germans basically came up with. It, it's kind of a pre-Mauser design, but it did come in the 8mm cartridge, had to be kind of modified for Spitzer bullets a little later, but no big deal. But the 88 Commission rifle is a darn good rifle, and it basically set the pattern for all the, the bolt-action rifles that would come after it, in, in one way or another. Um, I always thought that, you know, everybody says, well, how could you not have, you know, the, the 98 Mauser on, on a list of most significant firearms? Well, frankly, because it's as great as it is, and it's got many great attributes. Uh, the Germans could have fought World War One with the um, Gewehr 88, and I don't think anything would have been different. Could have fought World War Two with it, probably, and, and not and not noticed uh, a huge degradation in performance. Just that's just the way it is. Uh, pretty good, pretty good rifle. 
Uh, I like the I like the eighty eight. I think it's uh, very underrated and very cool. And you know, it kind of set the set the pattern. Uh, I also like the uh, ninety one Argentine. I think that's I actually like that better than the uh, ninety eight. But that's that's a whole nother story. Okay, another honorable mention: Glock seventeen polymer frame when it came out in the eighties. Very cool gun, very good gun. Uh, it owes a lot of its kind of design elements to, you know, the 1911 and, and also the Browning High Power. But a very good gun, and it showed that you could use alternative materials in firearms manufacture. There had been a few other polymer things out there earlier, but this really did it on a large scale and really, you know, kind of, kind of settled the argument that polymer uh, was suitable for firearms manufacture. Okay, honorable mention, Remington 700. Uh, that is the that is just the gold standard of bolt action rifles. Uh, it's kind of waning in these days of everybody getting a custom precision rifle, but a lot of them are based on the design of the Remington 700, and uh, you know a lot of military sniping rifles. The M24 was a, a Remington 700. Really great design. Really gave great service, and still does with the. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, sportsmen and everything, so it's great. All right, the next honorable mention, Thompson submachine gun. Um, you know, a great, iconic piece of firearms history, and it really showed that the, the submachine gun was its own class of weapon. It, it really showed how effective it could be, and it served, you know, admirably in the Second World War, even though by that time the the design was was a little bit outdated, but it 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 was a brilliant brilliant gun, and it was manufactured to a very high standard. And I would say even to this day, um, it it is really a tremendous a tremendous icon. Just the way it looks, uh, the the way it feels, the way it sounds, everything about it is is really uh, very very cool and. It, uh, it definitely did, at least in America, carve out and, and become the preeminent, the most recognized submachine gun. Okay, next honorable mention, STG-44. Uh, always debatable whether it's the first assault rifle. I just say it is. Always debatable whether or not it had any influence on the AK. I say it does, at least somewhere. Uh, just a great, great rifle, and actually they found them still uh, in use today. They found that caches of them in Syria, so um, still around, still there, still pumping out, and, you know, an unrecognized weapon in its time. I mean, uh, I guess you could argue the Soviets knew, but the Soviets saw its potential, but um, the Germans were, you know, they developed it, and they kind of caught on with it. Uh, the Western armies didn't really catch on to it, but a very influential and really, um, you know, no list is complete without it. Next one is uh, AK-47, AK-74, and all the variants thereof. Uh, you know, we already talked about it. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. And you can get them. You know, you can keep them running. Um, excellent durability and reliability. And it keeps on going. So I think uh, just, just by virtue of numbers and by virtue of of the fact that it's a good, reliable piece of equipment and everything else, it definitely deserves honorable mention. Next uh, honorable mention is the Smith & Wesson K-Frame Revolver. Um, it just became kind of the revolver of the 20th century. I mean, the police had it, the military used it. Um, it was adapted for everything from target shooting to uh, patrol carry, or if you were an aviator, you uh, carried one in the cockpit of your, your airplane or your helicopter. Um, just a great, versatile handgun. And it really kind of established what that good, medium-bore, reasonably-sized revolver should be. Uh, now, Colt, Colt had some, some ones that were similar to it, but I don't think they were nearly as widespread as the Smith & Wesson K-Frame. And uh, the K-Frame became legendary, the Model 14, the target masterpiece still a formidable competition gun today. So, And that design is, well, it's well over 100 years old, so there you go. Okay, and the last one 
is the Desert Eagle 50 caliber. And why is it there? It is there to show that all things are possible. That you can have a 50 caliber handheld semi-automatic pistol that if you really want to design and put a lot of effort into something, you can actually achieve it. Now, whether you like the Desert Eagle or not or, or think it's think it's great, it's, it's another question. But as a design milestone, as just an achievement of mechanical design, I think it's I think it's very awesome. Okay, here's another question. What do you think is the hottest trend in firearms right now? And, uh, you know, a couple months ago I would have said, oh, it's this new 5.7 by 28 that Ruger has. Uh, that, that appeared to be the new hotness at the SHOT Show and everybody was buzzing about it. I think, though, what will be the longer-lived and larger trend is the comeback of the revolver, kind of the retro revolver. And Colt is actually, for once, showing some, showing some brains and, and kind of leading this, bringing back the Python. They brought back the, uh, um, the Colt Cobra and a few other things. Uh, the King Cobra, I guess. You know, they brought back a couple of these classic revolvers, and people like them, and people want them. And... I think a lot of people are kind of jaded by the fact that, yeah, you get the latest Wonder 9, and is it any different than the other Wonder 9s? And then you got to go out and buy a bunch of magazines for it, which are not getting cheap anymore. And all this other stuff. Well, you know, there's, there's a simple beauty in revolvers. There's a simplicity. There's a reliability. There's an aesthetic. And a lot of people like them, and revolvers are making a comeback. Uh, revolvers are making a comeback. So right now, retro revolvers are the new hotness. Okay, and here's the last question. What do you think of carry optics for pistols? I think I talked about this once before. Um, frankly, I would say that you you pay your money and take your choice. Here's what I here's my thoughts on it. It's too nascent. The technology is just too nascent. They, they take something that's supposed to be small and handy, a handgun, and they make it more clunky and harder to conceal and everything else because it's got this now optic on top. Um, there are other problems with optics. Number one is for a carry gun, I mean, it's fine in a gamer situation. Gamers can use it. Target shooters can use it. But how are you going to make sure that that thing is actually turned on when you need it to be on? Does it have the battery life? How do you know that you turned it on, you put it in your holster, and you put your jacket over it, and halfway through the day, maybe the battery's dead because you haven't changed it out? You know, um, I still think there are a lot of questions about them. I also think that it requires a, a lot of training to adjust from regular you know, iron sights to an optic. And while I'm not saying that's not impossible, it goes back to another another issue, which is why I don't like a lot of gunsmithing custom touches on a duty-type gun. Because I want to be able to pick up any Beretta M9. I want to be able to pick up really any 1911 and not say, well, God, this... I, I did, this doesn't have the good trigger mine has. I want to be able to use the variety. I don't want to kind of spoil myself with a bunch of custom things that are only on one gun. And these carry optics can be the same thing. How do you transition back to the iron sights? Is that hard? Is that easy? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I tried to use an optical sight on a twenty-two pistol, and I wound up just not liking it. Now, maybe I gave up too soon. But I actually prefer the iron sights. I think iron sights are, you know, in many ways, very, very good. Now, for policemen in low light, maybe there's some value there. Um, maybe there's some value in, in other kind of situations. But for everyday kind of carry, I I'm still remain to be convinced. I still need to be convinced that they're a good idea. Uh, the other thing is just... Again, you're adding complexity and compromising some of that reliability. There's a reason that a GI-45 can do exactly what it did 
today that it did on Iwo Jima in 1945. And that is because the it has not gotten more complicated. It has not gotten more frail. It has, you know, it's it, it is what it is. But you start introducing all these things, uh, you know, the mounts and then the battery life and then the adjustments. All those things can go wrong. And I'm not saying they do. And maybe some of these models minimize that to an acceptable point. But I remain to be convinced. So that's where I am with uh, carry optics for pistols. Well, this brings to a close another edition of Old School Guns, our 73rd episode. And as always, if you have questions or comments, you can leave them on the Podbean comments section, or you can email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at A-O-L dot com. But for now, this is Old School Guns, out.